Nadia Sullenberg presents Casual Friday. Written and read by Thaddeus Sullenberg. A Casual Friday Christmas Card. Merry Christmas and happy holidays from our casual Friday family to yours. Wow, can you believe it? Another year. If I had a dollar for every day. Why, it seems like just last week was an entirely different season altogether. And before that, who really knows? It's all a blur, to be honest. A pair of fiery tire marks scorched across the calendar pages ripped off the wall and snuffed out under the weight of a big black boot. Quite a magical year indeed. It was just several short months ago. I remember the calla lilies were in full bloom, and school supplies were undergoing an extensive markup. (laughs) Where does the time go? In our case, it got divided up between untold fun and adventures, exciting new projects, and as always, a presumably unending torrent of proper nouns. Why, I myself, Thaddy Sullenberg, solo, independent, unaffiliated, on his lonesome and without escort, though not entirely void of companionship, it was that possum that brushed up against me one night in a scurry, experienced countless blessings this year, of which I wanted to share with you all from the amply festive furnishings of my modest retreat. I began the year in high spirits. I was flush with cash, courtesy of my 85-year-old concubine from the Imperial Opera, whom we'll call M for reasons of discretion, and Mrs. Marnie Temperance for reasons of unrestrained vanity. We wintered in the picturesque waters of Corsica and springed in the majestic ruggedness of Montana's luxury resorts. Every night was a wellspring of indescribable passion. A head-down fervency, the likes of which is too excruciating to relive. Alas, our courtship was nothing more than a sham designed to make her 95-year-old ex-fancy man and wine club brother to her husband H uber jealous. H for Herbert. And here I just thought she liked showing me off in blurred selfies. You know, to her great-grandchildren. Here is some timely advice from the three barons. Crestfallen at the thought of losing my luxuriant lifestyle, the dinners and getaways, the one-wear dress shirts and future backing of creative endeavors, the exuberant cocktail parties and shameless monetary exploits, that fancy jelly on the little burgers, servants of acquired faithfulness and late-night melange with coconut shavings, purpose, ready-made happiness, and of course those soft knitted neckties for a business smart look, I came to the emotional, fiscally detrimental cognizance 
that I played merely a pawn in a sordid game perpetuated by M, Barney Temperance. And not an ornate antique piece featuring prominently in a prized rumpus room chess set, likely gilded or jewel-encrusted in the engrossment of every home tour, but one of unsanded wood, splintery if not sodden from an artificial saliva spray taken three to five times a day or twice before lovemaking. How could you have treated me so, M? My words echoed for weeks throughout the smartly dressed-up rooms of my meager three-story townhouse, a parting gift. Did I not do you right? Despite my initial resistance and call for a tall bedside vodka martini, I continued for days on end, prominently for my stagnated, dimly-lit study, trying to replicate her signature repeatedly to the best of my ability. Oh, what a brief yet truly magnificent time it was. Incidentally, the universe being the gifted matchmaker she is, superbly bougie with a workspace on Rodeo, our paths will soon cross again as I look forward to conversing with this sophisticated, immobilizing, aforementioned mystery woman from across the theater courtyard of the Imperial Opera's Winter Gala next week. I plan on wearing the black gold cufflinks she surprised me with during our long Groundhog Day weekend in Zurin. We freighted over our stateside decorations and had the most enchanting celebration. The pieces were handcrafted and picked from the poshest groundhog decor rural Pennsylvania has to offer. However, we did manage to sneak in several kitschy adornments for our amusement. M has the loveliest sense of humor. I got a real kick out of the retreat and cover wall clock, with the toy groundhog opening the door of his cutely constructed burrow, only to dart back inside, pulling the door shut. How I patiently waited the minutes for such timely relief of my implicit duties, beguiling spouts from the wall, chirping grunts and shrills, as my jaw would stiffen up something fierce after a while. The maple bacon pancake muffins were particularly exquisite, and the beef wellington was cooked to perfection. She had flown in Dutch superchef Andreas Jensen, who also prepared the most delectable German-inspired cinnamon-baked apples with molasses. Although his clogging around in the middle of the night was rather disturbing, in the morning I suggested he see a urologist, and the matter resolved itself naturally. And with all the buck-toothed, chubby-cheeked, ornamental finery around us, I tell you, Holland has never been so gay. And though our time together has come to an end, I know I'll never be able to look at another hairy, wrinkly old rodent all done up in tinsel without thinking of my dearest M. Oh, how quickly all the stars in the sky burn out, yet their impressions remain. That's Temperance. T-E-M-P-E-R-A-N-C-E. Our tenderness will forever be safeguarded in a vault of cherished sentimentality, value to the dollar, and undyingly matched against all who succeed her. Marnie. M-A-R-N-I-E. Did I mention the Bruno Gallo suits? In spite of my profound loss, the work flourished month in and month out. By the start of May, I was six weeks into production on a little five-act I wrote with my love severance money called Count Backward from a Hundred, 
about a noted anesthesiologist whose life is in financial ruin after falling blind-eye victim to a Wall Street Ponzi scheme. So they fake their own death with an elaborate public funeral to evade all debt and collect on the insurance, only to have the two items cancel each other out in a late third-act climax. It was a calculated Shakespeare Novocaine rip I labeled as such and led with when pitching to the money folk, but made no mention of while describing to my industry colleagues. Sadly, the process was a grind. I had endured through several leading men who had exited the show prematurely after subsequent drafts at my idle hands, knuckly and thinned from prolonged exposure to expensive body oils, extended the central character's time under sedation to what would equate to roughly 85% of the play, to say nothing of me cutting the majority of the countdown scene by 98, which frustrated previous castings, including several regionally well-known thespians, each paid out handsomely through non-advised pay-or-play clauses, all of whom considered the scene the character's big moment. We opened in April, but were immediately shut down after I pumped nitrous oxide through the theater vents during the performance to give the play a little something extra. Well, everyone lost it. Taken by uncontrollable fits, audience members persisted in pronouncing various words of dialogue from the show, repeating them aloud during the production, each with more difficulty than the previous, their heads swiveling and mouths ajar the frequent drool dribbling down their chins and saturating their collars. They ooed and awed, marveling at simple lighting cues, cracked up in between acts, laughing psychotically at drawn curtain. We all just stood backstage staring at each other. We barely got through the show. It took 45 minutes just to usher everyone out of the theater. With a packed house in stitches, reviews were sterling, but the health administration pulled the plug on us which is unfortunate because I had already rented the house for eight weeks. Every night I performed the show solo to an audience of none, and during the day sold off pieces of the wardrobe I rolled out in front of the theater on squeaky clothing racks. Soil furs. I got soil furs here. I solicited passers-by, a molting pink boa wrapped around my neck, and in shorts. Irksomely, discount costuming isn't the meal ticket you'd think it'd be and I took a bath on the breakaway tuxedos. The following month, I focused back in on the writing. Summer brought with it a swift lash of benevolence bestowed onto others thanks to my court-ordered charity work, of which I'm especially proud. Soup kitchens, food drives, pro-ams. I sank a butte from 90 yards out, rolled for 89, and we would have won that tournament too, had we been registered to compete. My attorney fouled up the check-in process by neglecting it entirely and evidently never got the event approved by the judge. Apparently that handshake down at the club pool wasn't all it was made out to be. However, I'm happy to report that I kept my counselor on for the duration. You don't turn your back on your caddy. Volunteering and general philanthropy mean everything to me, and I try to pencil in a few holiday feedings each year, ladling out some love and making good on past transgressions, and having the hours go towards something, I might add. 
It's a spiritual thing, really. A re-up. A transfusion of generosity. In with the good and out with the bad. I wore my best cafeteria chic. Vertical stripes, extreme cuffing, and penny loafers without socks. Every occasion deserves the proper ensemble, especially when journalists are present. I invited the papers myself and took a selfie with every single person I served. I had learned my lesson from that untelevised golf tournament. I slopped out a heap of mushy green beans across a veteran's tray unsighted, shooting the reporters a Sunday smile and gesturing a number one to the camera. And with the press on hand, I couldn't help but elevate the admittedly depressing affair into a cosmopolitan experience with some of my famous expressionistic platings. There was a chocolate cream pie I smushed with both hands and splattered violently with a chocolate drizzle, conveying the presumed social hatred bore by the chocolate-spotted wretched before me. With a big fanfare announcement, I had everyone stop eating and gather around my station for a presentation on P-pointillism. After suggesting, framing, and rolling on a time-elapsed close-up of my, mind you, cost-free exhibition, credited to a local high school's new media program, whom I summoned by regal correspondence with dizzying calligraphy, I spent several hours arranging various peas into a striking visual work of art, a self-portrait of me in a chef's hat with a wooden spoon, winking. It was no more homeless shelter than a sacred mountaintop dedicated to a singular polymath figure, an artist and genius of classical antiquity, gracing the tattered, wide-eyed masses with cultural preeminence. Needless to say, I was astounded when none of the news outlets published or aired any of my works. Instead, they edited the thing into a puff piece on compassion and the community. I made the cut, incidentally, in a quick snip of B-roll, but they blurred out my face. Again with the blurring, I thought. To show there were no hard feelings, I invited them back for the remainder of my hours still to serve, but got ghosted, then blocked on every reputable social platform, even the freaky, spammy ones with all the advertising. I chalked it up to politics and them being out of touch with reality, then labeled it their loss and got back to writing. Thanksgiving was a solitary function with a table set for ten. I find the excessive chairs aesthetically pleasing and warranting different personas for me throughout the meal. To my left, Professor Donald Wetwood, a cousin of deep pockets and an affinity for stuffing them with mashed potatoes. As a family, we've chosen to find it an enduring quirk. On forced sabbatical, the professor delighted the table with Western anthropological tales of the Great Thanksgiving of 1621. It was to be the harvest gathering to beat all harvest gatherings. He prompted with spirit, lining the inside of his cardigan with deviled eggs and decorative gourds. On my right, Sissy, my kid sister and aspiring tennis professional, shoveled out a serving of shells and Velveeta, 
Exhibiting an obsessive yet playful drive, Sis doesn't go anywhere without her racket and often feeds herself by hurling food into the air and catching it in her mouth with questionable accuracy. Oh, what fun it is to ride in the one-horse open sleigh. Dynamite ham, bro, she said, smacking the glazed fat before volleying Professor Wetwood a series of rolls, taking out a crystal decanter from M. Further down the table, Mrs. Grundlebaum was having none of it. A decades-long family friend, Marianne Grundlebaum was our accountant for years, and she couldn't help but don her cat-like specs and take stock of my new domicile and all the expensive endowments nestled under its lofty ceilings. Mumbling her calculations with sweet potato-stained teeth, I watched the disapproval come over her face as the total figure exceeded this year's gift tax limit. Hardships. My all-but-non-existent dog, Sebastian, promoted up from the kids' table, sat unflinchingly in front of his plated turkey leg. At $50,000 a year, those training courses are paying off wonderfully. Tabitha, the cat, joined him, also up from the kids' table, who spent most of the blowout batting one of the Cecil napkin holders I had handmade by commission. And after a bit of pumpkin, licked around the marshmallows, it was time for a nap. Truthfully, I liked wearing the whiskers. It was quite the feast for one man and several impromptu identities, whose company I happily shared. Christmas, I'll be heading up to the country estate, bequeathed to me by V, whom you'll all recall from last year's Christmas card. We shared the moon and the stars and made truly unique, mind-boggling memories, all in a time span that seemed as brief as an eternity. I'll have with me all the jovial essentials and devices for cheer-making, the traditions, my late-night fireside readings from the Dickens classics. Roger Dickens of Calumet City, who wrote these independent children's Christmas books about the dangers of capitalism and the long-term effects of materialistic pursuits. Some holiday camp before the sentimental stuff. Every Christmas, we watched The Christmas Handbell, starring Frank Evans and Dorothy White. And when I say we, I mean me, myself, and I, along with Anyone else who might have snuck inside my head for a hot meal and a little respite. It's one of my favorite holiday films. I have a 35mm print in the archives I'll probably lace up and screen in the theater. It'd be a shame not to, given the theater will be decorated for the season. Why one can only dream of the red velvet and green satin and mistletoe strung up from the chandelier. And why not? Last year was so picture-perfect, the illuminating black and white in my peppermint-drizzled popcorn. V remembers seeing the film when it premiered in theaters. A quarterback then got her a ticket and candy, trolley fare to the diner for lunch, lunch, and a small toy from Albertson's next door. I even think there was an ice cream in there somewhere, and with enough change left over to put away for college. 
Her family, of course, owned the college, but it was still a teaching exercise. V for Vicky. I'll certainly have to whip up a frothy, caramel-filled Yuletide concoction, sprinkled with nutmeg and presented in one of my collectible Christmas tankards to watch the surely midnight snowfall. Blanketed in the pale radiance of a winter moon bouncing off the fluffy flakes, the glinting lights on the tree and the cold marble floors, heated, I'll be whisked away to Christmases not yet forgotten, bathing in the warmth and joy of nostalgia tenfold, mirthful visions prancing in and out of my thoughts before slipping off into that most heavenly of holiday slumber. Wrapped in woven magnificence, untroubled, unchallenged, and choking on tranquil cheer. I sometimes have to sleep on my side. Why, it's enough to make a body shut out the world and never return. Looking ahead, however, last month I was awarded the H.T. Goodworth Award for Perfect Attendance in Writing. It was a small award, and I mean that literally. Couldn't have been bigger than a doll chair, perhaps an end table. That's funny. Remind me to do a bit on doll furniture. Rare, collectible doll furniture. From hunting down retired pieces and auction house bidding wars, to the counterfeit scene and private collection heists. Never mind, thanks, I got it. Every day I sat down and turned out a quick-firing barrage of material. Gold, if I may be so accurate. But woefully, that particular nugget of my handiwork, as remarkable as it is, was deemed a separate category of which I was simply nominated. Don't get me started. The perfect attendance tallies were kept by each individual rider, monitored through the honor system. It was a close race. Sure, we weren't able to get out as many CF productions this year, but we banked a plethora of fun. We even bottled a few tears and stuffed a hat box full of hogwash. We stacked the silliness floor to ceiling and patted it thick with comedic flippancy. We pulled up the tacks and laid down the truth, a commercial play well exceeding our current square footage. Listen, we put down a running board of runs to circle the place top to bottom several times over. Speaking plainly, if you'll allow me, we rewired the outgoing A-Claw and rerouted its storage output link to supply the incoming A-Claw. Simple as that. So get excited for a whirlwind of casual Friday merriment in the coming months, plus a whole lot more. We can't wait for you to enjoy all the wonderful things Thaddeus, me, that's Lashes, has in store. And he's got a little Christmas tree doodle down here at the bottom. Oh, that's cute. I like him. He's fun.
production of Thaddeus Ellenberg's Casual Friday. Written and read by Thaddeus Ellenberg. With an introduction by Nicole Kalasich. And artwork by Adrian Lobel. This series is independently produced by Thaddeus Ellenberg. 